Amen, amen, amen. Will you join me in praying real quick? Lord, we want to say thank you. You are alive. You conquered the tomb. You walked out of your own grave. You are victorious, and you are ruling and reigning even now. And Lord, you're present in this room. You want to speak. You have a word for us today. And so, God, I just pray. Lord, you're here, but we invite you here in a special way. Would your presence be in this place, and would we encounter your spirit today? Would today be more than just another Sunday morning gathering? But today, oh, Lord, we want to hear from you. From your word, would you speak to your people? We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen, amen. Hey, go ahead and be seated, City Light. My name's Chris, and uh, I'm one of the pastors. If you got your Bibles, would you open up to uh, Psalm 32? That's going to be our primary text today. If you got your Bibles, open them up there. Let me begin by uh, telling a scenario and a real story that happened um, this week at my house. So I came home from work at uh, City Light, came home. Uh, my four-year-old was hanging out in the living room. His name is Paxton. He's my little boy. Had my one-year-old Lucy. And uh, when we play in the afternoons, my wife just throws out a whole bunch of toys and chaos ensues. And so I walked in, gave him a hug and kiss. And uh, then uh, my wife was making dinner and I can't cook. I'm literally horrible with anything other than microwaving. And so um, I thought I would go and be moral support for her and uh, encourage her and listen to her how her day was. So we start talking. Hey, how was your day, hon? Here's what happened. Here's what the kids did. And so we're talking. And in the back of my kind of ear, I'm starting to hear a conversation that's happening in the other room with my kids. I can't see them, but I can hear them. And uh, my four-year-old Paxton turns to my one-year-old daughter and he says, "Um, hey, Lucy, uh, can I have that train that you're playing with? Can I have that train? And Lucy's, she doesn't know how to say words. So she doesn't say anything. And uh, they keep playing. And literally like three seconds later, I hear the tone get a little more agitated. And Paxton says, Lucy, give me that train really patient young man. And, uh, and so I'm starting to get the, like in my head, I'm like, this is starting to become a dangerous situation. I should keep like an ear on that. And like a few seconds later, Lucy's unaware that Paxton is obviously getting more agitated. And uh, I just hear this thud. And then I hear my daughter screaming. And then I hear the pitter patter of my son fleeing the scene. His feet, you know, hitting against the wood floor. Like, it's just, you know, it's all gone. So I go in the living room. It's amazing, you know. Within like six seconds, she went from like a smiley, happy baby. Now she's like teared up. Her face is swollen. Snot's everywhere. You're like, oh, you little thing, come here. You pick her up. Now you're mad. Somebody push your little girl over, right? So now you got to go find the son. We're going to have to have a talk. I find him in our master closet. Um, He's got the train. Turn the lights on and shut the door, okay? And so... This is not, he's not in a good place. He knows. And so I open this thing. I say, hey, Paxton, hey, man, like, how did, how did Lucy fall? Or how did, why is she crying? Why did she, oh, hey, daddy, you know she falls. She falls a lot. I'm like, no, not on her face. Not like that. No, doesn't make that noise. And, um, and then I said, Paxton, how did you get that train? Oh, she gave it to me. Oh, really? Really? Come on. And so... I tell you that scenario because Paxton, you know, Paxton was doing what was natural to him. When he acted selfishly against his sister and took the train from somebody and pushed him over, you know what his natural inclination was not to do? Let me go into the kitchen and tell daddy. Let me tell daddy, hey, dad, guess what I just did? I slammed my sister's face into the floor and took her train. You know, that was not in his like, this sounds like a good idea, you know? And he took off and he ran and he hide. And It's easy to mock my son's kind of sin nature, but isn't that us? 
Um, man, we do the same thing. When we blow it, we, we either choose to conceal our sin or we choose to confess our sin. We choose to move towards our heavenly father or we choose to move away from our heavenly father. And so as we open up Psalm 32 today, I want us to just learn from this text um, because here, here's the reality. All of us, the thing that we have in common, every single one of us in this room, whether you're old or young, suburban or urban, rich or poor, blue collar, white collar, it doesn't matter. The one thing we all have, all have in common is that we are going to blow it at some point in our life. It's not an if we sin against the Lord or if we sin against the people we love. It's a when we sin against them, when we blow things, when we mess things up, when we make things messy in our life. And so if that's the case, if that's true of all of us in this room, that we're going to be in that place at some point, we need to know what do we do when what we've done is wrong? What is a good and God-honoring way to respond to our sin when we realize that's not an okay place to be, right? And so um, I'm excited to get in this psalm. This is personal to me. Um, I used to look at confessing our sin to the Lord as some weird spiritual discipline that's just for like hyper-spiritual people. And then guess what? I actually started struggling with sin. And I realized what an incredible gift confessing our sin to the Lord is. That we get to come to the Lord as we are. That the Lord would take our shame and lift that. That the Lord would fill our hearts with joy as we realize that we're forgiven that the Lord would choose to reconcile our relationship with him and allow us to experience him as the good father. Man, it, it is a total gift that we get to confess our sin to the Lord. So I want to go into this text with that posture. And um, we're going to hear from, uh, we're going to hear from David. We're going to hear from David this morning. David is the author of this psalm. He uh, is the author of 75 of the psalms, which is roughly half of the psalms in the book of Psalms. And uh, what we know about David, he was king. He loved the Lord, but yet he had um, some messy chapters of his story. <laughs> Anybody else got that in their past? Love the Lord, got some messy chapters. I love that the Bible doesn't cut those chapters out. So what we know about David is he so loved the Lord that at one point in his life, he was king, but he was dancing in his underwear in the street. He was absolutely unashamed of his love for God. Now, don't do that in your neighborhood, okay? Don't, they'll call the police on you. You're like, I'm just trying to do what David did. It will get, it will get weird. I promise you, don't do it. But... He was that undignified. It says he undignified himself because he loved so God. He didn't care who was around. He was going to dance because he loved the Lord and the Lord had provided for him. Now, um, the other chapters of his story is some of you guys know, David had a good friend named Uriah who was a warrior and one of his mighty men. And he sent Uriah off into battle. And then David realized that Uriah's wife is really cute. And so he seduced Uriah's wife, had an affair, got her pregnant, and then when Uriah wouldn't help him cover up the situation, he basically had Uriah killed in battle so that he could marry Bathsheba and make it all look legit. That is a great resume. No, that is messy, scandalous, evil, manipulative. That's just not a good place to be. And so when David talks to us about the confession of sin this morning, um, we're going to learn from a guy who understood the weight of sin and guilt and shame. But he's also a man who understood the amazing grace of God, that he realized he was absolutely at his worst at one point and had encountered God's, God's grace and mercy for his life. So David's not going to talk to us about an idea of forgiveness. He's going to talk about an experience he's had with the God who forgives. And uh, so let's open up our Bibles. Chapter 32 of Psalms. We're going to jump in. The first thing I want to show us is, um, in our first point, is David's going to start this uh, first two verses off with a beatitude of blessing. 
blessings. Uh, this is how we're blessed as the people of God. And he's going to say the number one blessing that should define our lives is that we've encountered a God that forgives, that we've encountered a God who responds to us with grace. So let me read this. Point one is you're blessed. Blessed is the one whose transgressions is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. I want to ask you, see, like, do you feel blessed this morning? Did you come in here saying, I'm blessed? Some of you guys are like, no, no, I did not. No, they didn't have my flavor of donut in the back. I wasn't blessed. Um, <laughs> it's been 197 degrees. Some of your guys' AC in your car went out, okay? You're like, I'm not blessed. Some of you guys have marital issues. You got financial pressures. There's drama. There's distractions. And you're coming into this place and you're saying, no, 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 I'm not blessed. Now, listen, I want you to know that the Bible describes blessing not as a, a magnitude of wealth and materialistic things or a comfort in your life or a less than, um, or like an easy life without suffering. That, those are all good things. But that's not how he describes blessing. He's describing blessings in these two first verses as experiencing the divine grace of God in our life. He says, listen, can you sleep at night because you're not haunted by shame? Is your soul at peace because you know you're forgiven? I mean, is there, is there a joy in your face and on your smile that's legitimate and genuine because you know the Lord has done a great work in your life? Then you're blessed. Then you're blessed. Let me show you how he says this. A couple ways. Look at verse 1. He says, he says Blessed is the one, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. This is the good news of the gospel that we, the guilty, can be forgiven because the innocent one, Jesus Christ, took on the punishment we deserve. We are guilty, but God has pardoned our sin. The Bible is very real. We are transgressors, which means that we're the rule breakers. We're the people who might have known the rules. We knew what God called us to do and asked us to do, and we looked at the Lord and and intentionally disobeyed the will of the Father because we thought that would be better for us. We're those people, and yet the Lord has chosen to forgive us. The innocent one died for the guilty. His name is Jesus Christ. If you've tasted that level of forgiveness and you've been pardoned by the work of Jesus Christ, you're blessed. You're blessed. Verse 1, later on, he says, Blessed is the one who is covered, uh, whose sin is covered. Let me tell you why that's good news. In junior high... There was a day that was terrifying for me. Uh, I didn't want to go to school. Uh, I had braces already. I had a bull haircut, which was just a bad idea. Nobody looks good with that hairstyle. And that morning, I had broken out with not like a small zit, but like some kind of Rudolph massive zit right on my nose. And when you know you're going to get acne, you're praying like, please, on one side. Because then I can walk down the hallway like on this side. Nobody can see this side. You know, you think, okay, but it was right in the middle of my nose. There is no getting around this. Nobody else had acne. Wow, nobody else is feeling my pain here. So great that you guys were prom queen. That's neat, all of you. Okay, um, well, I got a huge zit. So I was like, mom, don't make me go to school like this. What am I going to do? I can't put makeup on this. Like there's no, like I was just insecure that I was going to be in a conversation with people be like, yeah, Chris, tell me more. And they're like looking at your zit, like in the middle of conversation. That's what I knew was about to go down. And in that moment, I was longing to be covered and to be hidden so that nobody would see my imperfections and blemishes. Now, I'm going to make a huge jump here, but this is how we feel before a holy and righteous God. You know what's way more terrifying than thinking about walking down a junior high hallway with, a, with acne on your face? is standing before a holy God and understanding 
that he is going to, he's going to perceive your thoughts from afar, and he's going to understand your hidden motives. And he's going to be able to look into your greed and your lust and your past, and he, there's no hiding behind a smile and a charismatic personality or a spiritual resume. Standing before a holy God is terrifying if you have to come as you are. It's not going to go well. But the good news of the gospel is that we, our sin and our imperfection is covered behind Christ in his perfect perfection. Man, when you experience Jesus, you don't just get past forgiveness of your sins. You get an internal covering forever so that you can stand in the presence of God and he will look at you and he says, in you I'm well pleased. Not based on your imperfection, but based on Christ's perfect imparted righteousness to you. That's good news, church, amen? That is good news. So if you've experienced that, then you know you're blessed. Finally, it says, blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. So listen, we believe as Christians, we believe as Christians that sin always costs someone, but it doesn't have to cost the sinner. Sin always costs someone, but it doesn't have to cost the sinner. Your sin was paid for in full by Christ Jesus. Yes, you've sinned, and yes, you owe a spiritual debt, but the good news of the gospel is you don't have to pay. You don't have to work that debt off. You don't have to try to earn your way out. Christ has fulfilled your debt perfectly. So the sin that you have isn't credited to you. It was credited to Jesus Christ. He took on the full wrath and punishment for your sin so that your sins don't have to be counted against you. That's awesome. It's like you broke the rules and you don't have to go to time out. It's incredible. God has been a gracious gift giver to you. Do you understand that you're blessed? When you understand that you're guilty and you understand that someone else took that guilt for you, it, it actually wells up in your heart a spirit of gratitude. And that's why in this verse, he's saying you're blessed, you're blessed, you're blessed. But if you notice, he calls us transgress- transgressors, sinners, and people with inequity. He doesn't paint an incredible picture for us. But the reason that we're blessed isn't because we're good, but because God has been good to us. That's why we're blessed. Point one is you're blessed. thing I want to say about that is we are going to go through life as people who are either going to live with a posture of, God, you have given me everything I don't deserve. God, you have been good to me. God, although I'm unlovable, you've loved me. God, although I'm guilty, you've forgiven me. And our hearts will be welled up with an affection for God because we understand what we've been given, or we're going to be grumblers and complainers, and we're going to walk through life saying, God, why didn't you? Why couldn't have you done this? Why didn't you give me a little bit more of this? And we're going to miss the blessing that we have in Jesus Christ. Church, I just want us to be people who take inventory of what Scripture has said is true about you. You are forgiven. You are covered. You are accepted and loved by God. The price has been paid so that your salvation is secure. You're blessed. Amen? Amen. Let's move on. Point two. Point two. He says, point one, you're blessed. Point two is he's going to say, learn from me. So David, David is going to transition from blessing to his personal story. He's going to say, learn from me. He's going to say, I've experienced this grace and this forgiveness in a real way. So let me tell you my story. And let me tell you how I first tried to uh, conceal my sin. And then I was brought to the point of humility and confessed my sin. Here's what he says, verse three and four. He said, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away um, through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Okay, so David's first strategy in verse 3 is just to keep silent. He, he wasn't going to tell God or anybody else about the thing that he was trying to hide in his life. And this is a horrible place to be. Because in verse 3, he says, your bones were wasting away. Now, I'm not a medical doctor. 
But that sounds like a horrible place to be. Chris, how are you doing today? Buddy, well, I feel like my bones are wasting away inside of my own flesh. So you're telling me not a great day? Yeah, that's what I'm pretty much saying. Yep, not a great place to be. Not tremendous at all. I mean, and then he says, I'm groaning all day. I mean, listen, happy people smile and laugh. Joyful people smile and laugh. They sing a song. They rejoice in the Lord. You know who groans? People who are miserable on the inside. And what he's saying is all day long. Did you notice that? There was no escape. He could go on a run. He could sit in isolation. He could not escape the sickness that was on the inside. There was a death happening on the inside. There was an agony happening on the inside. Then in verse 4, he says, it gets worse. He says, my strength was dried up like a drought in the summer. So spiritually, he's in a desolate land. You guys know what that's like when you're hearing from God and you're enjoying God, and you probably also know what it's like to be in a drought. You're like, dude, I just don't even feel his presence or his nearness. And he said, I'm not just spiritually dry, but I'm just worn out like I was in the sun all day. I have no kingdom ambition. David used to be a guy who had an internal worship life that drove his leadership, that drove his intentionality for the kingdom of God. Now he's saying, dude, I'm just exhausted, tired. I groan a lot, and my bones feel like they're wasting away. Right? That, that's where he's at. But I don't want you to miss how good God is, even in verse 3 and 4. Let me show you where God's at work in this text. Verse 4, he says, Day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. He's, whose hand is this? This is the hand of God. So God's hand of conviction is on him in this moment. Now, here's, here's what this means. He's basically saying, David, I want to allow you to feel the full weight of your sin so that you would finally come clean and move towards God in an honest way. Have you ever felt the conviction of your sin? It's a horrible feeling. You can take a shower and you still feel dirty. You can watch nine hours of Netflix and you can still feel like there's a restlessness in your soul. But let me tell you why the heavy hand of the Lord is an absolute gift to you. It's a gift because the most unloving thing that God could do is allow you to live in sin, hide in sin, feel no remorse for your sin, no conviction for your sin, and no urgency to be reconciled to the heavenly father who loves you and wants to give you good gifts. So he will use his heavy hand in your life so that you can feel the weight of conviction so that you move into an authentic place with other people and your relationship with God. He wants to restore your joy and he'll allow you to feel his conviction so that you can move from that place of shame into a place of freedom and joy. Amen? That's the heavy hand of the Lord. And as I look about this, God loves you so much, he would rather let you feel his heavy hand now so you don't have to feel his heavy hand of wrath later. It's like disciplining the kid. Sometimes you have to do that so they don't end up crossing the line later when the consequences are more severe. It's the heavy hand of the Father. He loves you, and he will convict you so that you'll return to him and return to the right posture. Man, that's awesome. Now, let me show you how David finally decides to come clean. Verse 5, let's read it together. He says, I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and here's what the Lord did. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. City Light, can you imagine what that must have felt like? He had been living a lie. He has been posing. He has been posturing. He's trying to convince everybody else that he's okay on the outside, inwardly. He knows he's sick and he's dying. He thought he got away with his sin, but guess what? His sin is poisoning him from the inside out. He had no joy. His His sin was destroying him. 
and finally to come clean and confess his sin and say, Lord, here's what's happened. Here's where I blew it. Here's where I stepped aside. Here's where I need your grace and forgiveness. Here's the messy things in my life. Oh, Lord. And then in that vulnerable, humble position where he's not King David, he's just a broken sinner at the foot of God. For him to experience grace and forgiveness and love and acceptance and for him to hear, I love you. You're forgiven. My grace is sufficient for you. Can you imagine being in that place? His joy was restored. Experience was forgive, or, or forgiveness was experienced. I want to ask you, have you ever been in that place? Have you ever just come to the end of yourself and said, God, no more secrets in my relationship with you. I'm done trying to hide it. Here's the thing that I did. Here's where I crossed the line. Here's when I had too much to drink. Here's when I did that thing that I told myself I would never do. Have you ever been in that place where you said, God, I don't want to play the religious game and put on the smile and say I'm a good church kid and that the bad people are over there. I realize there's something broken in me and God, I want to come clean. How freeing is that to walk out of your self-imposed prison of shame and guilt and to finally feel known as you are and loved as you are? It's an incredible experience. I can relate to this. Um, I can remember as a new Christian, uh, I was on campus and came to know Jesus as a freshman. So as a junior, you know, I was in a Bible study freshman year, lead a Bible study sophomore year, start taking some steps into leadership, and you're on stage, and you're teaching and preaching God's word. And, um, but, but there was a disconnect in my life between who I was on stage and who I wasn't. And um, I've heard this with you guys before, but in that season of my life, I was still struggling with sexual sin, struggling with pornography, enslaved to it. And I thought to myself, I can't tell anybody, because guess what? I'm the Bible study leader. What are people going to think? What if they found out? What if they knew? What is God's posture towards me right now? How disappointed could he be? I don't want to show him this side. I want to show him how many people showed up at the weekly meeting to hear me preach the gospel. I don't want him to know about this. And so I kept it all inside, and finally I just said, no, 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 I can't do this. Just like he said, I just had to confess to the Lord, come clean, told some people on campus, mourned my sin, I was empowered by the Holy Spirit to start fight my sin. It was an incredible moment where I finally came clean and let the Father know the worst about me, and I experienced the Father's best in that moment. I would love to say, hey, that was, you know, 10 years ago back then, but now, guys, I'm telling you, all you got to do is once, and then I'm telling you, it's going to get better, and you're not going to struggle anymore. I'm telling you, no, this is a lifelong thing where I've had to confess sin. Just, just with Pastor Joe, he was in my city group not long ago before he came on staff, me and my wife early in the church, and um, I was frustrated. We got into an argument. I started to yell. I raised my tone. I used my words to hurt my wife and not help my wife. And I felt shame. I'm the pastor. How could I do this? What if people knew? I should be past this by now. I know the verses. I could teach the premarital class. You're an idiot. <laughs> an idiot. <laughs> And so now I'm dealing with this thing, like, how do I go to a guy in my church who I love and respect and say, dude, I'm sorry, like, this is what's going on in my marriage with my wife, you know? And, uh, but I did, and confessed my sin, he preached the gospel to me, he reminded me that God's grace is sufficient, that the only perfect husband is the way that Christ loved the church. Experienced grace in that moment, and then went and reconciled with my wife, humbly acknowledged my sin to her. So church, this is not something that you're going to do once and you're saying, okay, that's neat. I, I experienced that. No, no, no. Like this is going to be part of our lives as Christians. Like we're going to blow it and we're going to need to know in those moments, it's okay to go to the father as you are. Let me get super practical here 
because what I know is, you remember when Gavin said last week, sometimes you got to talk to yourself and you got to stop listening to yourself. And when you talk to yourself after you sin, this is what you're, you're, you're sounding like. Okay, I can't tell anybody this. If they knew it's not going to go well, the best path for me is just to cover this up and act like it never happened, right? When you talk to yourself, it sounds like that. But in this verse, he said, I said, I must confess my sin. What he meant by that in verse 5 is he's trying to pep himself up. He's like, hey, I've listened to myself too long. I'm talking to myself now. I'm done listening to that voice. I want you to know, when you fall into sin, you are going to be flooded by 10,000 reasons why the best thing you can do is to ignore your sin and your shame and try to cover it up. Self-preservation. You're going to say, I just need to delete the text. I need to arrest, uh, erase the web history. I need to pretend like it never happened. I need to come up with an alibi. You're going to take a shower. You're going to try to feel clean. You're going to do a million things. Let me tell you, this is one of the number one tricks of Satan. He wants to tell you that disobedience to the Lord is better than obedience. And so when you fall into sin, you realize it's death, but then you're ashamed of what you've done. And he wants to keep you in that place. So you push other people away and you push God away. And all of a sudden he keeps you out of the game because he's heaping on guilt and shame. So you're paralyzed in your relationship with God. So number one thing he wants to do is just, hey, listen, you're guilty, but sit in your shame. All the while, Christ was reminding you, don't you remember I paid the price for it? Would you just come clean? I want to say, church, before I move on, this is very real. Some of you guys are in hiding right now. Some of you guys have hidden some messy stuff in your life from the Lord right now. I want to invite you. Would you be people who say, listen, I'm going to do business with the Lord. I'm not going to hide in my sin and my shame. I'm not going to listen to that voice. I'm going to come clean. And uh, here's what I know. God loves you guys. He wants you to experience joy. And as look at David, like, there's no joy in hiding. (laughs) There's just none. The joy is when you experience the Lord and you come clean. So point two, learn from me. Point three, here's what we got. Your response matters. Stop hiding. Your response matters. Stop hiding. He's going to turn his attention from his personal experience with the Lord, and he's going to become a confession advocate. It's like you go to a restaurant and you go home and tell all your friends, I'm telling you, this place was bomb. You need to check it out, okay? That's exactly what David does. He said, God met me when I was at my worst. I I don't know what else to tell you, but all of you guys in this room, you need to confess your sin. And so look at how he builds this out in verse six and seven. He says, therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You... Uh, you are a hiding place for me. Now he's talking about God again. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve my life from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. God's, or David's plea for us in this text isn't just to sit here and study David's confession or to talk about our sin with other people. He's saying, would you pray? Godly people, that means go, have a conversation with the Lord, humble yourself and talk to your heavenly father. And he says, would you do it now? There's a sense of urgency in this text. He says, do it before you find yourself in the rush of great waters. Well, what does that mean? That means one of the worst things that can happen for you is you can stiff arm God and hard heart, or harden your heart towards the Lord. Then all of a sudden you find yourself in a trial of life where something really significant has happened and gone wrong. And guess what? You've pushed everybody else away from you because you're hiding spiritually. You push God away from you because you're hiding from him in sin and shame. And now you find yourself in a place where you need the community of God. You need the power and presence of God, but you've pushed him away for so long. He's saying, don't be that person. Do it now. 
If the heavy hand of the Lord is upon you, move towards God. And then in verse 9, I don't have time to read all this, but if you skim down to verse 9, he's going to reference, he's going to say, don't be like a stubborn mule. Don't be like a stubborn horse who's only controlled by the bit of the mouth. Instead, would you lead, would you follow the Lord's great leadership? You know, a stubborn mule won't take instructions and won't be led into a barn. Even if there's a storm coming, he'll sit outside in the hail and will destroy him. He said, don't be like that, people of God. Don't be so stubborn. So just say next to your people at City Group this week, are you being a stubborn mule, okay? Are your bones wasting away? Because that's on you, okay? <clears throat> he told you not to do it. Um, you know, it's interesting here because then in verse 7, he gets back into that personal story, and he says, this is who the Lord is to me. And I want to make this point because he's, he basically offers three blessings of being in a restored relationship with God. He says in verse 7, you're a hiding place for me. You're a place of refuge. Then he says, you preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. What he's saying is, when you confess to the Lord, yes, you get a reconciled, with the, you get a reconciled relationship with the Father. The gift is not just that your shame and guilt is taken away. Church, the gift is that you get God. You experience him. He's saying, instead of hearing accusations about my sin, I now hear shouts of deliverance. Instead of hiding from God, I now get to hide in God and experience him. The Lord has now not just saved me, but he's also now sustaining me. He's helping me preserve. So this is good news. And what I just want to say is, when we experience the Lord, the good news of that isn't we just get forgiveness, but we get God back. And so David is confessing and he's experienced the Lord. And so this is where I want to end. If you look at this text, the text ends with this. He says, be glad in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord. Rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy. Verse 11. And this is exactly what Joe was talking about. City Light Church, when we go to the Lord and we confess our sin and we're met by his grace and we encounter his love that's undeserved and unwarranted, the only response from our lips and our heart is rejoicing, worship, and joy. Man, confession doesn't leave with like, end with just like, okay, I got away with that. Confession ends with, God, you are good. Man, you have been good to me. God, we can rejoice that you know the worst about me and yet you've given me your best. We can rejoice because you cover all of our iniquity and all of our sin. That's what fuels our worship. Isn't yesterday's grace, but it's the grace that we experience in this moment. Today we're going to take communion. And um, I want us to be mindful of two things as we take communion. The first thing is when we look around this church as we come forward and take communion as a church family, here's what this family is. This family is not good people and the bad people are out there. This church is a group of Davids. We are a group of people that have experienced the unwarranted and unearned love of God. And so this is a testimony to how good, good God is that he can love sinners, transform sinners, accept sinners, and forgive sinners. That's what our community is. Second thing I want us to be mindful of is, is for some of you in this room, you might be experiencing the heavy hand of the Lord right now. And uh, can I just encourage you not to leave this place without doing business with God? If, uh, if you need to pray, would you go to the back and pray with somebody? If you need to talk to the Lord as you sit there, would you do business with the Lord? If you need to ask a friend right now that's sitting with you, hey, this is, this is what I need to confess and come clean with, would you do that? Don't be the stubborn mule that walks out of here without experiencing the grace of God in a fresh way. 
So we're going to take communion. We take communion to remember what Jesus has done for us, that his body was broken for us, his blood was shed. Let me read uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 11. This is our instructions on communion. If you're helping with communion, feel free to go back and start to get set up. It says this, For I received from the Lord what I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So just by way of instruction, uh, we'll have communion servers up front for you, also in the back. Uh, If you have a food allergy, there'll be a special uh, table set up for you there. Band, you guys can come up. We'll pray, and we'll take communion together. God, the good news of this text is that um, even when we run from you, your heavy hand is upon us. And um, I want to thank you, Lord, that you have not let us move astray and move away, but that you have consistently convicted us of our sins so that we run back to you, experience your hug and your embrace. And God, we proclaim that, God, you are a God of great mercy, grace, forgiveness, that you are patient and kind, that you are steadfast in love. So today as a church, we proclaim we are... We are a people, corporately, of people who have experienced your forgiveness, and we come to you and we just simply thank you, Lord. Thank you that you've met us at our worst. Thank you that you've delivered us from our addictions. Thank you for the way that you've forgiven us. Thank you for the way that you've covered us. God, you are immensely good towards us. We love you, Lord. We pray that your work would be in this place. Would you flood this place today with your grace and your mercy? That those who's experiencing your heavy hand, even in this moment, I pray that they would experience you in a very personal and real way right now. As they do business with you, Lord, oh God, would you be near. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.